Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Romans chapter 5. I mentioned last week that I, Lord willing, would talk a little bit about rejoicing in tribulations this week. And uh, that's what I'd like to do. I, I hope to offer all of you some encouragement uh, since so many of you are, so many of us, including myself, are currently facing some pretty intense trials and tribulations. I think if I look back at the history of our church, I think there's probably more crises and difficulties and trials going on in every, almost every, if not every family in this church in the last year or two than maybe in the previous decade. There's just a lot happening. And there's some people who've been enduring trials and illnesses for many years, uh, and there are other people that are enduring new trials. You know, or if you're like me, God likes to change up your thorn in the flesh every few years or so. Um, and uh, of course, for my good, so that I, I will better learn that in my weakness, he is strong. That's always a good thing to learn. Um, but at any rate, in an attempt to encourage you all, I've chosen a certain passage from Romans as the main emphasis of a, of a brief study this morning. It's a passage that has helped me immensely over the years. It's one I always go back to when I'm struggling. In fact, it's constantly in my mind. It's one of those passages that never really leaves my mind because I'm struggling in some way all the time. Um, but it's, it's been a great blessing to me, and I hope it will be to you as well. But I'm going to begin in a way that might at first seem counterintuitive to many of you. Uh, in fact, I'm going to begin by talking about sin um, as I attempt to take us on a, a brief journey through some key passages in the epistle to the Romans. And in the process, I hope to show you all clearly uh, why the Apostle Paul teaches us to rejoice in our tribulations. Our primary text here in, in Romans 5 is verses 1 through 5 where Paul says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also, and in the New King James, there it says glory in tribulations. But here, the word really means rejoice in tribulations or even celebrate, in a way, our tribulations. Um, it's, that's the idea of it, uh, but we also rejoice in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. One of the reasons we can rejoice in tribulations is because we know that it produces something. Something good. Perseverance or patience. And we know that that perseverance, it says in verse 4, produces character. Who doesn't, and in the context, of course, that's a Christ-like character. And who doesn't, if they're a Christian, want to be more like Christ? So if we know this, that, isn't that a reason to rejoice that you're becoming more like Christ? Should be, if you want to be more like Christ, at least. And then it says character produces hope. Now, hope here, uh, and this... Ha- I pointed out, I think all the teachers here pointed out, whenever we come across this word, it's been pointed out by Pastor 
Pastor Ben recently, hope doesn't mean what we often take the word hope to mean. Uh, I could say, I hope the Cubs will win the World Series this year, right? But we all know that happens once a century, right? But, but uh, that, that would be wishful thinking, right? And, and most people take the word hope to mean something like wishful thinking. But the word that's used by Paul, it means something more like confident assurance. And that's what he's talking about here. We rejoice in tribulations knowing that tribulation produces perseverance or patience and that that produces character and that that produces a confident assurance. That's the the ultimate goal in this life is to give us a confident assurance. That's what these tribulations are for. And then Paul says this, this hope, this confident assurance does not disappoint. If you've learned this kind of assurance through trials, you will not be disappointed as a Christian. And here's why. Because the love of God has been poured out on our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. With this confident assurance comes a deeper appreciation of the love of God, and that never disappoints. <laughs> and so that's my brief reading of the passage, and now I'd like to pray before we uh, take our little journey through this epistle. Holy Father, I do thank you for your word. I thank you for the tremendous encouragement your word is to us in our trials, in our sufferings, our tribulations, our afflictions, whatever word you want to use for the difficulties and hardships that we are experiencing in this world. Some of them we're experiencing simply because we live in a fallen world where such things happen. And some of them we're experiencing because you are disciplining us in your love, as, as the author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 12. And some of these things, most of them, uh, perhaps, are, are simply because uh, we're Christians and, and we're under attack always, not just by the people in the world around us, by the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places as well. But ultimately, all the hardships we have, we're experiencing because you desire to make us like Christ. Because you love us. Help us to grasp that firmly this morning so that we will not be disappointed in what you're doing in our lives. I ask these things for our good and for your glory and in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I said I'm going to start with sin. And there's a reason I have to do this. It's because... There's a key phrase, and this is going to be the focus of our study. I'm not going to try to do an in-depth exegesis of, of all these verses this morning. I really want to just talk about this phrase, the hope of the glory of God, and how central that is to understanding what Paul is saying here. Because he says, we rejoice in the hope of the, of the glory of God. And that's, that's really why we rejoice in our tribulations. So what does that mean? So there's this language of glory and glorification and being glorified that runs through the epistle of Romans. And it's important that we pick up on that language where Paul begins to use it, and that's when he's talking about sin. And he begins to use it talking about sin, and we'll never understand or be encouraged 
as we should unless we start with the backdrop of sin, right? Uh, That's why Paul starts there. We can't understand the gospel the way we should unless we understand it against the black backdrop of sin. That's where the gospel shines. That's where we under, that's how we that's what it's for, right? That's also the backdrop against which we have to understand why we have the tribulations we have and why we can rejoice in them. If you don't understand the doctrine of sin, you'll never appreciate the grace of God. You'll never appreciate what he's doing for his glory in your life. So we got to start there. And we're going to start in chapter 1. I'm just going to read a few verses. I'm always tempted to read the whole chapter every time I turn to it, but I will just begin at verses, uh, verse 18 and go through verse 21. <clears throat> and this is where a key concept is first introduced in a particular way that we need in order to understand our passage in chapter 5. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. In, in uh, Romans 1 and 2, Paul teaches that, the, that there is enough light in general revelation and creation to hold all men accountable their disbelief in God and their rejection of him, although we need special revelation to be saved, right? There's not enough light to save us, even if there's enough light to hold us accountable. And that's why he's saying they're without excuse. Because, he says, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Notice that the gravity of sin lies in its failure to glorify God. And that means that sin prevents our ability to properly show the glory of God in our lives. When Adam was first created, you could see the glory of God in Adam. You could see how wonderful God is in Adam, right? And in all of creation, But because of sin, you know, Adam and all of us since Adam have failed to show forth the glory of God in the way that as human beings God originally intended that we should. And when we reject him and we sin, we're failing to glorify him. And part of glorifying him, of course, is thanking him, recognizing him as the creator who gives us all things. This is a theme that Paul picks up on again, this failure to glorify God. Uh, Later on, when he concludes his description of sin and he begins to shift into God's response to save us, um, he's told us already that the wrath of God is revealed and and he's explained in chapters one through three why the wrath of God is revealed. Uh, And now he's going to talk about a righteousness of God that is revealed in chapter three verses 21 through 26, where Paul says this in Romans 3, 21, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. He'll go on to explain this as the righteousness of God that is imputed or reckoned to us as our own through faith in Christ, the righteousness of Christ credited to us. 
And he says that kind of righteousness was witnessed by the law and the prophets. And then in chapter 4, he'll give an example of each. From the law, he'll give the example of Abraham, who believed and his faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. It wasn't his own righteousness by which he was saved. It was an imputed righteousness. And, and Paul says, now we know what that imputed righteousness was. It was the righteousness of Christ. Right? Uh, and then he gives an example also from the prophets, David. Right? Um, I believe it's Psalm 32 that he cites, um, where David is rejoicing that God does not impute his sin to him, which means that instead he imputes righteousness, Paul says. And of course, Paul is revealing the source of that righteousness from God through Christ, right? So this is what he's setting up here when he says, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, if you keep in mind the verb that he had used, doxazo, earlier, and this is the noun doxa, the glory of God, how do we fall short of the glory of God? We fail to glorify him as we ought. There is a kind of glory of God that should be manifest in us, And we fall short of that. We fail to glorify him. But thank God he's speaking to believers, and that means all of us who have trusted in Christ. And he says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God's got an answer for our falling short of glorifying him and and showing his glory, right? And that is redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation, that is a wrath-ending sacrifice by his blood, through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. He had passed over the sins of Abraham and David. How are those men justified? How is righteousness credited to them? How could God, who will not justify the wicked, justify a man like Abraham, who was a sinner, And David, who was a sinner. Ah, Paul says, now it's been revealed how he did that. He he gave them his righteousness. That's how. He reckoned his righteousness to them because of what Christ would do, right, for them. It's the new covenant retroactively applied, you might say, to Abraham and David. He says, now we see how God could do that how he could be just and yet justify someone like Abraham and David. Now we could see how they could be because of Jesus. That's why. Because in his forbearance, he had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. When Paul says that we have all sinned here and fall short of the glory of God, as I said, he's once again stressing our Failure to properly acknowledge God and to glorify him in our lives. But God in his grace, as we've seen, has enacted a plan to reverse this sinful pattern through the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul says we've been justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We should not be surprised then that... uh, when Paul takes up again the matter of justification by grace through faith in our primary passage for this morning, 
he connects it with the hope of the glory of God in our lives. Ah, now given what we've read already, that means something. We have a confident confident assurance that we can now glorify God, that we can in some way not fall short of the glory of God as we once did through Christ. Notice notice what he says in verses 1 and 2 of Romans 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, that means we've been declared righteous because we trusted in Christ and his righteousness has been credited to us. Uh, In what Martin Luther called the happy exchange, right? All our sins were put on Christ on the cross and he suffered for our sins. His righteousness gets credited to our account as though it were our own and God looks at us and says, righteous, righteous. He declares us righteous in his court. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, he says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only do we have peace with God, enabled by the saving work of our Lord Jesus, who has provided unhindered access to our gracious God, but we also have joy. Joy. These, these are fruits of the Spirit, by the way. You go and read Galatians 5. We're not given them in such a way that, that they cannot be improved in us, right? That they can't uh, sort of wane sometimes when we struggle. But they'll always be there, this peace and this joy. Now, the peace he has in mind here is peace between us and God, but that, of course, leads to internal peace, right? In the, in the believer, in our hearts. And Paul says, in fact, that we, that we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That's the kind of joy he's talking about. But what exactly does he mean by that? We've already gotten some idea of what he means because we've looked at this similar language already. This is a, this is a correction to our sin problem where we failed uh, to glorify God. We fell short of the glory of God. And so this assurance of, of the glory of God must be that that ceases somehow in us that it's changed, it's turned around. And so with the previous statements in mind about how we fail to glorify God and fall short of the glory of God, we can say that this hope of the glory of God is the confident assurance that the glory of God will indeed be seen in us as God intended when he created us in the beginning. Paul will go on to refer to this as our being glorified. It's interesting. He talked before, see, we failed to glorify God because we fell short of the glory of God and we didn't show forth his glory as we should, is the idea. But he actually then kind of alters his language and instead of just God being glorified, we're being glorified. That's rather stunning. But we have to understand that in a very particular way, as we'll see. He'll describe it as our being glorified. Uh, and he'll make 
he'll actually stress that this doesn't fully happen till the future resurrection. We see this in Romans 8. I'll begin reading in verse 16 of Romans 8, and I'm going to read all the way through verse 25 at least. Uh, you really have to read this entire passage to really fully get what Paul's saying. And by the way, he's using the same language he used in Romans 5, this language of glory and of hope. Beginning in verse 16 of Romans 8, Paul writes, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Interestingly, we already saw in chapter 5, verse 5, that through this process that God puts us through, and he uses trials and tribulations to do it, to increase our assurance as he transforms us and makes us more Christ-like and gives us this character, that brings us confident assurance, right? Paul's already said in that context that in this way, we somehow fully receive the love of God through the Holy Spirit in our hearts. I think he has the idea that we experience it in a deeper way. And it's interesting that in the same kind of context where he's talking about glorification, he talks about the role of the Spirit assuring us that we're children of God. I would put to you that that's one of the things that, that trials do. In fact, if you go and read Hebrews 12, you'll see the author of Hebrews talks about if we're not being disciplined by God uh, through our trials, then we're not his children. He just, <laughs> this is how we know we're his children and that he loves us. He does what it takes to make us more like Jesus. He can do anything more loving for us than that. And so the author of Hebrews, which might be Paul, but that's another debate. The author of Hebrews wants us to know that, hey, through these hardships, you've got to look at them differently. You've got to look at them as an opportunity to understand and experience God's love more for you. Boy, that changes everything. That's the idea that's percolating in Paul's mind in Romans 5 and Romans 8. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and of children then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. With Christ, it means. Christ has been glorified. And at some future point, if indeed we suffer with him, and that brings in the trials and tribulations, and he'll mention more of those toward the end of the chapter, Romans 8, that Christians experience. We're going to partake in some way in the glory that Jesus has. That's what he's talking about. He suffered and he's been glorified. We suffer and with him. And we're going to be glorified with him. For I consider, he says, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Now, we already know it's not our own glory. It's God's glory that's going to be revealed in us. It's the hope of the glory of God in us, not our own glory. And the sufferings of this present time, they're just not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. When we're like Christ, when we're glorified together with him, We'll look back on all these sufferings and see them as nothing. And Paul's saying, but we don't have to wait for that time. We can view them as nothing now if we're confident of 
the fact that that glorification is going to happen. Hence the hope, the confident assurance. If you have a confident assurance that this future glorification is going to happen, you don't have to wait till then to look at your sufferings now as nothing in comparison. You can look at them as nothing as in comparison to that now. And that's what Romans 5 is about. Romans 5, 1 through 5. How we can do that. More on that as we move along. But he says for the creation, or he says for the earnest expectation, verse 19 of Romans 8, for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. There's that word again. It's going to keep cropping up here. Uh, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious, and that's the same word for glory, doxa, into the glory of the liberty of the children of God. There's that glory again. That Jesus, as the glorified Son of God, well, he was sinless, as we've already seen throughout his life, but he's free from any temptation to sin and <laughs> free from, and we can, we're going to experience that freedom too. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. That's the future resurrection he's talking about here. For we, we were saved in this hope. This assurance. But this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope, that is, if we have a confident assurance that something is coming, if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Now, that word perseverance is the same word, of course, that he used in Romans 5 that these tribulations produce perseverance. So it's interesting. Perseverance brings us hope, and the more we hope, the more perseverance we have. That's what he's saying in Romans 8. In Romans 5, he said, we get this confident assurance through going through these trials and persevering, right? And now he's saying, as we persevere, or as we get this hope, we also persevere more. It's, it's, it feeds upon itself, right? The more hope you get through perseverance, the more able you are to persevere. But I think he's discussing here what he meant earlier when he spoke of the hope of the glory of God. That's what he has in mind here. The glory of God will be revealed in us, he says in Romans 8, when we're glorified together with Christ. Um, in fact, elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 3, 17 through 18, Paul describes the process of sanctification as our being trans, transformed from glory to glory into the image of Christ. And the language of glory is used there again. I'll read it for you. Romans, or 2 Corinthians rather, 3, 17 says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. There's this idea of freedom again. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, the Lord here being Jesus, are being transformed into the same image, the image of Christ. 
his glorious image, from glory to glory, he says, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now, this being transformed from glory to glory into the image of Christ, uh, Paul calls sanctification, Romans 6, 22, when he says, but now having been set free from sin, there's that idea of freedom again, right? And having been, uh, become slaves of God, which is the freest anyone can ever be, if you want the kind of freedom that Christ gives, you have your fruit to holiness. Hagiasmas, it's, it's translated as sanctification. And I think rightly so in the ESV and the, and the NASB. And then he says in the end, everlasting life. So not surprisingly then, the end of this process of sanctification in which we're transformed from glory to glory, which must mean something like we, we become more like Christ who is glorified, there's more and more of the glory of Christ seen in us, right, through this process of sanctification as we become more like him. That's the idea. It's not surprising then that the process of sanctification's end result is called by Paul glorification. In Romans 8, further on, in verses 28 through 30, where he describes God's overall plan from before the foundation of the world, as he would put it, in Ephesians 1, it's the same time period he's talking about here, when we were predestined. He says in Romans 8, 28, and we know that all things, no matter what they are, no matter how bad they are, including sufferings, trials, persecutions, all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. It's that purpose he was talking about in Romans 5, remember? He's talking about it here again. Christ-likeness is the purpose. Glorification. He goes on to say, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Jesus is glorified. We will one day be in his image. That's happening bit by bit now. The The fullness of that awaits the future, the resurrection as we've seen. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. Talked about justification already. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Now he's speaking there as though it's a done deal when he's already said earlier in the chapter that it's the future when this happens, the resurrection. But here he's talking about from the standpoint of God's eternal plan. It's as good as done. If, if, you, if you've been called and justified, you will be glorified. You will be in the process of being transformed from glory to glory into the image of Christ, of being sanctified. But that ultimately happens at the resurrection. It will happen, Paul's saying. That's a done deal. Because God, when he saves someone, he does it right. <laughs> When God enacts a plan, he completes it. If it all depends on him, we're safe (laughs) then, right? Thank God it all depends on him. So all things, including tribulations and suffering, and if you read the rest of Romans 8, you'll see more on that, and how they can't separate us from the, the love of God, which Paul has in mind in Romans 5, again, as we'll see. All these things are part of God's plan to glorify us, 
which must mean in the context to reveal his glory in us, as he said early in Romans 8. And although it already ultimately happens at the resurrection, there's, there's a foretaste of it now as we're being sanctified. And so that's what I think Paul is talking about in Romans 5 when he speaks of the hope of the glory of God. I think he's trying to tell us that as we learn to endure trials in faith, we see God being glorified in us more and more. And this gives us a foretaste of the coming glory that will be revealed in us, which in turn increases our hope, our assurance that that will happen. If, if you're saying, well, I'm struggling to be assured that I'll ultimately be glorified, wouldn't it be good if you could see some of that happening now already? To give you assurance of that? To increase your insurance of that? Of course it would be good. And that's exactly why God gives you that. And he does it through trials and tribulations. That's what Paul's saying in Romans 5. So Paul's telling the Romans, you've got to look at your sufferings differently than you might be accustomed to looking at them. You've got to see them as God's love for you. You've got to transform your minds or you'll never be able to rejoice in your sufferings. And Paul wants them to know they can have joy even in their sufferings. If they view them through the right lens, if they understand their purpose. So back to, to Romans we, 5, we've read verses 1 and 2. Let's, let's look at this process then. In verses 3 and 4, he says, and not only that, but we, but we also... Rejoice, uh, I, I like it better in, in the ESV or the NASB, exult. You could even say we also celebrate. Uh, we've, it's a joyous occasion to us, unlike for maybe other people. James would put it this way, when you, when you encounter trials, just consider it joy. And what, he, what he has to mean by that is an opportunity to have more joy, right? And then he gets into the same thing Paul is saying in Romans 5. Understand what this is for. And if you don't have the wisdom to understand it, ask God for that wisdom and he'll give it to you. Well, Paul's giving us that wisdom right here. So we can, we can see these as opportunities for joy. Not only that, we also rejoice in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. So when Paul says here in verses 3 and 4 that we glory or rejoice better in tribulations, knowing what they produce in us ultimately, Hope, hope. He has to be referring to the hope of the glory of God he's just spoken of in verse two. What kind of hope do we get as the end result of experience these tribulations in faith and trusting in God through these tribulations that we experience? We get the hope of the glory of God, Paul is saying. The more we see God being glorified in and through us as we faithfully endure trials, the more we increase in the certainty that his promise of future glorification is indeed true. And this also leads to a deeper experience of God's love for us, as he says in verse 5. This hope that he's talking about, this hope of the glory of God, the best hope any human being could ever have, the only hope in the end that we should, we should want to have. It's the only hope for us of salvation. It does not disappoint. 
You know, a lot of believers are disappointed in their trials and tribulations. A guy wrote a book many years ago, Philip Yancey, called, Dis- Yancey called uh, Philip Yancey wrote a book called Disappointment with God. He talked about how often, now he doesn't think we should be disappointed with God. He's recognizing the fact that many people are. Paul's saying there's no room for disappointment if you understand. If you understand that everything you're going through is because God loves you so much. And he's saying if you get this perspective, you understand how you can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God in your sufferings. The love of God, he says, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So as the Holy Spirit sanctifies us through our trials and tribulations, increasing our assurance, our hope of our ultimate glorification, we'll be more confident in God's love for us, won't we? We won't be saying, I'm so disappointed in God. I thought he loved me <laughs> when, we're, when we're suffering. Instead, we'll be saying, God loves me so much. Look what he's doing for me. He's making me like Jesus. I've got, there are things coming out of me through this trial I didn't know I had. I thought maybe I'd quit trusting in Jesus in an intense trial, but it turns out I'm not. It turns out I'm still trusting him. And I got a lot of doubts, but in spite of those doubts, I'm still trusting him. How's that happening? It's got to be the work of the Spirit in my heart. It's got to be the work of the Spirit in my life. I'm, I'm hanging on in faith. I didn't even think I had. How, how am I persevering in this trial? I don't get it. I, I thought, surely if I can experience this kind of trial, I totally question whether I should believe in Jesus or not, but that's not happening. I'm, what's going on here? Uh, The Holy Spirit is working in me is what's going on. And he's enabling me to have a faith I didn't even think was possible. And because I know that that's happening, I know it's not from me. I know it's from him. And Paul tells me why it is. It's because God has a plan for me to glorify me. And it's happening. Look, it's happening. Wow. Wow. Uh, All my doubts are are finally going away. Oh, uh, peace, joy, assurance are flooding my heart now because now I'm viewing these things like I'm supposed to. I'm shaking off that worldly understanding and things that that will break someone else only make my confidence in God deeper, stronger, more steadfast. That's because he loves me. Because he loves me. He said he made me like Jesus, and he's doing it. And you can't see that as clearly as you should, sadly, without suffering. We're told by the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 5, our Lord Jesus learned obedience through the things which he suffered. Do any of you think you're greater than your master? Really? Really? Do you think there's any other way to become like Jesus other than to take up your cross and follow him? I tell you, whatever you're suffering right now is a cause for joy. 
excitement that you get to experience God's love more fully. If you view it correctly, like Paul says, you can see why I keep going back to this passage whenever I go through sufferings. And I've been amazed at what God has done in me. I remember telling my wife when I thought I could die from cancer, and that may still happen. Uh, I remember saying, you know, I thought I'd be afraid if somebody ever told me I had cancer and I could die. I was actually surprised that I wasn't at all afraid. Because that ain't me. I'm an anxious, fearful guy about stuff like that. Or at least I thought I was. I always used to be. Now, faced with that reality, why am I not afraid? Well, I'm not puzzled by that. I know why I'm not. God's doing what he said. He's keeping his promises to me. That's why. I have hope. Now, I recognize that what we're being taught here is contrary to what uh, you might hear in many, if not most, churches these days. I get it. Most Christians are sadly bereft of a theology of suffering. And so they suffer needlessly because of it in ways that God does not intend for them to suffer. They bring it upon themselves. Most evangelicals I've run into these days would seem to assume that we experience God's love most fully when everything's going well. And they would see suffering as an indication really of God's anger toward them rather than of his love toward them. But as we've seen, our our departed brother Paul would not agree with that. He would say that the Christian life is a life of trials and suffering and that such hardships are, in fact, due to God's love for us and his faithfulness to keep his promises to us, to conform us to the image of his son. In fact, it was by means of such teaching that we've been considering this morning that Paul traveled from church to church in the first century, we're told, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in faith and saying, through many tribulations we enter the kingdom of God. How can it be that telling people through many tribulations they enter the kingdom of God can be something that would strengthen them? Well, if you've been taught by Paul what he says in Romans, you know exactly why that's the case. You're also entering the kingdom of God. (laughs) That's a really good thing. So here's my final prayer. May God grant us the wisdom to receive this teaching, as well as the assurance, the joy, the love that we might more fully experience as a result. Be encouraged, brothers and sisters. God has a plan for you, and he's not finished with you yet. And those trials and sufferings you're enduring aren't hindrances or bugs in that plan. They're a feature of the plan. (laughs) Please keep that in mind so that you won't suffer needlessly in ways that God does not want you to suffer. And question his love for you. 
when that's the farthest thing from his mind. Let's pray. Holy Father, it's my hope that uh, we have all been encouraged this morning by just focusing again on, on the overall plan you have for us and how our difficulties fit into that plan. As I said, they're not a bug in the plan. They're a feature in the plan. They're part of the plan for our good, for your glory, for our ultimate glorification when we are like Christ. It's happening bit by bit now. It's, it's like the future glory that awaits us has reached back in the past and just manifesting it in little bits in us even now. Giving us assurance of that future fullness that we will receive. Help us to not lose sight of that, Lord. I pray for each and every brother or sister here this morning who has been disappointed, perhaps, that you will wipe that disappointment away and replace it with assurance and love and joy you desire them to have. Help them to walk out of here saying, I'm going to rejoice because God loves me so much that he's doing the hard work that needs to take place for me to be like Jesus. It's not hard for him. It's hard for us. Lord, but you'll, you'll see us through if we trust you. Thank you for your assurance, I pray. In the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. Thank you once again for your kind assurance. Oh. Attention. Attention. Although your kind attention is assuring to me.